Okay, now, let me ask you this question. Have you ever formed an opinion about a place or about people, and you've never met those people or been to that place? I think we're all guilty of that in some way. We're in a culture that definitely looks at places and people, and we see things on TV or on whatever device we're on, and we make judgments and things. But I think it's really important to get close to things that we don't know about, to create an idea that is based off of an experience versus just what you're seeing from very far away. Today's guest on Dr. D's Social Network is Yossi Alter. Yossi is an awesome guy, 65 years young, incredibly fit, and amazing stories about growing up in Israel, uh, being the son of a mother who was in the Holocaust, and so much more. So, before we check into that conversation between Yossi and I, let's ride out a little bit with some music and enjoy, everyone. August 1955. And why I always mentioned it? Because my country, Israel, founded uh, October 9th, sorry, November 1948. So when I was born, the country was only seven years old. So of course, I don't remember that. But as I grow, I remember Israel, which today it's one of the highest high-tech countries in the world. And there is a good book to describe it. It's called The Startup Nation. It's a book that uh, writ, uh, uh, written about all the startup nation, all the startup companies that actually start in Israel. And technology that we use today, daily, it's coming from Israel. And a lot of people don't know. For example, Waze and, and uh, many, many other technologies that come from there. Um, the face ID that you have on your phone, when you turn your phone, the face ID, it's Israeli technology. A lot of people don't know. Back to my story. So when I was born, um, as I grew up, the country was really, really behind. I remember uh, when we moved to live in the street that I grew up in, um, it was about half a mile long, but there's only three buildings there, three floor apartment with each building has uh, nine, nine to 12 apartments. Okay, that's how we used to live. I live, I grew up with a brother in a very small, tiny, tiny apartment. In fact, my mom took the balcony and she divided to extra room. So me and my brother lived in the room that was actually built out of the balcony. And you know what? We had a great, oh, wow. great, great, yes. And we, we had a great um, uh, childhood. 
And, you know, I'm always laughing because I was married to a woman from South Africa and she lived in a 14-bedroom home in Johannesburg. Oh, 14-bedroom wow. with, with a pool and tennis court. And wait, why am I telling you that? Because they moved to Israel to kibbutz and they moved into two-and-a-half-bedroom apartment. But the parents were so happy because they had education for the kids. They had all the sports facilities. I don't know if you know what kibbutz is. Are you familiar with kibbutz? I'm not familiar, no. Okay. Kibbutz based on, it's, it's founded on, uh, on communism, where it's a community live together, okay? You live in apartment. You don't pay rent. You don't pay electricity. You don't pay elect, uh, uh, um, education. You don't pay anything. You get everything from the kibbutz, from the, uh, from the community. What I grow, like if we have, for example, uh, orange tree um, field or cornfield or any other uh, uh, vegetable fruit, that's how it's founded on agriculture. So uh, they used to take this and go to the city and sell it. And from the money, they pay whatever I just described. They pay your education. They pay. So you basically pay nothing. It was very much based on communism because a lot of Jews that immigrate to Israel after Israel founded were a lot of Holocaust survivors from Europe, okay? And uh, later on, there was uh, immigration from um, Middle East, like Egypt, Syria, uh, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, and uh, many, many other uh, Arab countries that there were a lot of Jews lived there, uh, were very successful, uh, they used to own a lot of businesses and they used to be attorneys and lawyers and, and uh, they all immigrate to Israel. Uh, a big part of them were uh, very poor and they came to Israel and uh, it's, uh, it was a big challenge to turn a desert into a flourish, flourish place that we have today. And when you go today to Israel, you won't believe that this country is only 72 years old. Because what we achieve in those in these last 72 years, it's, it's everybody say it's a miracle. It's a miracle because, you know, with all the security issues that we face every day with our neighbors, where most of the budget go to security, with all of that, we create amazing, amazing, amazing country, very high-tech country um, and very advanced country. How did that happen? How did the creation of all that happen while there is all of this kind of discord between surrounding countries? Okay, so as I mentioned before, uh, a lot of people saying that the Holocaust was really the main reason to create the state of Israel. Although there was a guy by the name Theodor Herzl that used to live in Austria. And he was the one, the first one that was dreaming to have a Jewish state. Because the Jews along the history was kicked out of Spain, was kicked out of many, many places. We had no place to go. Today we have a country. So every Jew in the world know that God forbid, if there is anti-Semitism and like, for example, in the last few years in France, the anti-Semitism was so strong that a lot of Jews sold everything and moved to Israel. Why Israel? Because Israel is a Jewish state. 
And so the beauty in Israel that you find is very much like America. It's very um, uh, multicultural. There are people, not only Jews, but majority are Jews from all over the world. They are Jews from Peru. They are Jews from from uh, um, uh, just name it. There's Jews all. There's Jews from China. There are Jews. The Jews all over. Yeah. And wow. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And so a lot of them in the last ten years immigrate to Israel because the uh, anti-Semitism it's uprising now again, and so people don't want to deal with it. For example, in France, a lot of kids kids was bullied by Muslim, and I I don't say the Muslim bad. I'm just saying that what happened. A lot of kids was bullied yeah. by Muslim in the street of Paris, like coming back from school. So uh, they used to beat them, they used to come home bleeding. And, and after a while, the parent says, you know what? Enough is enough. We better go back. We, we better go to Israel and live in Israel because in Israel we have freedom. And so when I say freedom is when you can't wear a yarmulke, if you're a religious person, or you can't wear uh, the Jewish star and you hide your identity, you don't have freedom anymore. You see? And, and that's what happened in many places around the world today. And uh, But today the difference is that we have a place to go. Before we didn't. So the Jews, after the Holocaust, I'll give you an example, my parents. My dad was from Germany. My mom was from Poland. My mom was in the Holocaust, in the concentration camp, five years. She was a slave working for the German. Luckily, that's how she survived. They didn't take her, like many others, into the gas chamber or kill them in a different way. She was slaving. She was working for Siemens. You know Siemens, the company? Siemens? Yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. German company. She was working for them, and that's how she survived. I'm sure you saw the movie Schindler List. Yes, I've seen Schindler it. List, Mr. Lee, Schindler List, he saved a lot of Jews by giving them a job to work to to uh, to uh, manufacture parts for the German army. He made money, but doing that, he saved a lot of people. And at the end of the movie, I don't know if you remember, he was crying. He says, for another ring that I have on my finger, I could save more Jews because he bribed the German. He gave them all kinds of presents. Yes. And the leader of the Jews, they used to play the accountant told him, Mr. Lee, Mr. Schindler List, Mr. Schindler, um, it says in the Talmud, Hebrew Talmud, when you save one soul, you save the whole world. And look how many people you save. So he started crying. Basically, then he got it. And he always said, I could save more by giving more to the German, but you save so many people. And today there is a monument in Jerusalem, in Mount Herzl, where all the non-Jews that helped to save, to save Jews' life, they have a monument, a section in the cemetery in Israel. And uh, Israel always, always um, say thank you for helping us because you saved people's life. And there were a lot of non-Jews, Christian, that risked their life to save Jewish, Jewish life. And I have a lot of story to tell you. It's just amazing. Amazing. <laughs> so my mom, my dad ran away from Germany. I tell you quick the story. Ran away to Germany, to Italy. When the German entered Italy, he escaped to Copenhagen, Denmark. 
And when they entered Denmark, my dad crossed the ocean to Malmo, Malmo, Sweden. Sweden wasn't involved with the war. Now he became a student in university by the name Lund, very, very well-known university, and he graduated as a um, dairy engineer. He was specialized cheese, milk, all that stuff. My mom, as a survivor, they transferred some of the refugees to, to Sweden. My mom met the, my dad there. After my dad finished his study, they married and immigrated to Israel. And I was born in Israel. Wow. What did your mom start telling you about the Holocaust? Like, what age did you really learn that from her? Okay, so I uh, don't know if you know that a lot of survivors uh, were sharing their stories, but a lot of them not. My mom was one of the ones that didn't talk much about it. Bits of pieces, you know, a little bit here and a little bit there. In fact, when my kids was born and they grew up, I told my mom when she got like to her 80s, mom, please, I want you to tell my kids what you experience. She refused to do that. I said to her, why? She goes, they don't need to know about this horror. And I said, mom, they need to, because when you're not here and I'm not here, this generation should pass the message to generation to come. Yes. She couldn't talk about it. So she told me very little stories here and there, some of them very powerful. Um, But in the other end, there are a lot of Jews, survivors, they talk a lot. Okay, they told the story because they said, I want, I don't, I'm, I'm not telling you the story for you to feel sorry for me. I want to tell you the story of what human being could do to human, could do to human being. And this is unacceptable, you know? And, and uh, you know, uh, there is a good movie. It's called The Paper Clip. It's a story that starts in, United, it's a true story. In the United States, the teacher was teaching about the Holocaust. And one of the students raised up his hand and he says, teacher, how can you count six million? So they decided to collect six million paperclip. And it became, you should watch the movie, it became a worldwide project. And believe it or not, they collect over six million paperclip. And uh, there was... Um, a couple journalists from Germany that heard about this project, they got involved, they went back home, they got one of the train that used to carry Jews to the concentration camp, flew it to the United States, to this city, and they built a museum with all the paper clips. Wow. It's a very, very unique wow. story. Now, why I keep talking, why I'm keeping talking about it, because unfortunately, there are a lot of people still today, they saying that it was a Jewish myth. It's never happened. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, gotcha. I know. It's very sad. It's like it's like very similar strange. to the Armenian. There was over... Go ahead. Sorry. No, it's strange that they like would say almost like... Uh, it's It reminds me of conspiratorial fringe talk where people say, oh, that wasn't real. Uh, that didn't happen. And they just basically deny this very terrible existence or that, oh, that didn't happen. It's, it's really sad that people would even make that statement. It's really sad for a few reasons. One of them is because the, there, was no, there is no many survivors 
alive. I don't know in numbers, but not many because three months ago, there's a gentleman at the JCC where I work. He was 94. He was a survivor and he passed away. Okay. There are people today, maybe in the late 80s, they're still alive, but not many. Those are the only ones that can really tell the story from their own experience. Me, I can tell the story from my mom's experience. You understand? So the moment this generation of survivors not exist anymore, you know, our job is to pass the story. It's like the same, like people will say in America, there was no slavery. Of course there was slavery. Of course. And a lot of people say there was no slavery, you know? And so you can't uh, erase the uh, the uh, the past. You can you have to keep talking about the past. We have to learn about it in school. We have to educate our people with one goal: never again. What's the motivation for someone to say that the Holocaust didn't exist? Why would they even mention that? Because they are anti-Jews. There are a lot of them ah. on this planet, unfortunately. And I never, never, never understand why um, there are so much, so much hate again against my group. Um, we are a very small group. We are a very educated group. We are a very peaceful group. Uh, we don't hurt nobody. And uh, we contribute to the world per capita more than any other country in medicine in agriculture, uh, in technology, in cyber, cyber, how do you call it? Cyber, whatever, cyber, I forgot. The, the name. Yeah, I know what it, you're saying. Basically. Okay? And, and um, if you look, how many Nobel Prize winner among Jews and among the rest of the world when it's come to a small group of people? And I'm not saying it uh, to show off or to impress you. I'm saying it because that's the truth. We are a very peaceful and quiet uh, minority, uh, but for some reason, a part of our ed- part of our culture is to study and and to um, you know to be successful. And when when Jews own businesses or Jews are successful, for example, as a lawyer, as a doctor, jealousy. That's the only thing I see is jealousy. And because people jealous, now, they hate Jews. Now, when it comes to America, this is the land of the freedom, the land of opportunities. If you are successful, Dorian, more than me, I take my hat. And I said, hey, you work hard, you deserve it. Right. But people don't look at it this way. They go, oh, these Jews, they own the banks, they own this, they own that. It's a BS. We own nothing. We work hard to own what we have. I give you an example. I lived in South Africa for five years in Johannesburg. Okay? The African, local African, used to love working for Jewish people. Why? Because we treat them differently than the majority of the people treat them. A lot of people, when I got there, it was still under apartheid. I saw how white people, the white regime, uh, treat the black people I told my my ex-wife, Linda, Linda, I I don't think we should raise up our kids knowing there's the difference between black and white. I just couldn't handle it. And and we left 1990. We came to the United States, you know. So 
African people used to love working for Jews. Why? They treat them nicely and they pay them more than average other more than average people. Why? Because they respect them. They're human beings like us. The color of the skin, it doesn't make them uh, uh, different people than us. Yeah. You see, that's how I see it. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't. What is the, can you explain to me, um, I've always thought about this, kind of the, I always think of like with Jewish people, there's a huge uh, sense of, I feel like pride and identification of being Jewish. But I've also seen where kind of there are people who are Jewish, but they're not Jewish in religion. Like they identify with being Jewish, but they don't practice the religion. But then there are Jewish people who identify as being Jewish and also practice the religion. What's the disparity in that? What I, I'm trying to figure out what that is. You know? it's, it's a very tough question because the uh, majority of Israelis are secular. As I don't catch me by numbers, but I think about 20%, maybe more, are religious Jews, like, you know, with the black hat and with the yeah. talit, you know, with yes. the, uh, whatever they call it. I, you see, I grew up in a home, and I'm not proud saying that. I grew up in a home of Holocaust survivor. My mom never believed in God. Only because what she saw and what she experienced. Right. She always said, if God, if that God exists, how come you let people kill so many people, not only kill, burn them to death, burn them to death, gas them, you know, in a, in a, in a gas chamber. And how come you let people do that to other people? And so I go up in a home. We never light, you know, Jewish people light candle Friday night. They, they pray for the wine, yeah. for the, for the challah, the bread. We didn't do that at home. Very, very seldom. But by growing up there, I learned to love the country. I became Zionist. I learned to love the place. I learned to love my country. I knew that one day when I turned 18, I have to go to the army for three years to protect my people. I was very proud doing that. Okay? Yeah. And and um, most, like I said, most of the Israelis are not into religions. They love Israel like me. They'll do anything to save the country, but they're not uh, following uh, the, you know, uh, they're not following the tradition of the religious people. Now, the religious people live in a bubble. They live in their own community, and I'm not saying it to criticize them. That's the way I, I respect it. I respect anyone the way he wants to live as long as he don't force it on me, right? And they they don't drive on Saturday, on the Sabbath, Jewish Sabbath. They don't do anything considered work, which is good for them. I myself, I swim, bike, and run Saturday. So in their eyes, I'm doing something wrong, which is okay. But please, let me do what I want, and you do what you want. They are good people. And uh, why it's like that, it's... Uh, you know, it's. I look at Christian here. There are a lot of Christians that they are very religious Christian. They go to church every Sunday, but there are a lot of them they don't. Right. So the way you identify religious Jews is the way they dress. You know, with a black hat, black coat. Yeah, and the yeah. Non, the non-religious. But in in Christianity, you don't really can 
identify who is religious Christian. It's hard to tell the difference. Yeah, yeah, because uh, I've been a Christian most of my life, and uh, there are several people I know who are Christians like myself, but they never go to church, like ever. Um, Versus like me, like I, yeah, I I go to church very regularly, um, but you wouldn't know the difference between myself or someone who was a Christian and didn't versus maybe like Hasidic Jews. It's very... You you know because there's like a uniform and attire, uh, yes, uh, you know yes. Orthodox Jews. There's there's a whole community and tradition re- around that. Yeah. So it fascinates mm-hmm. me how like I see like a lot of um, American Jewish people who are Jewish, very proud, but they don't have that religious tradition at all for that. Okay. So I think I, some people are confused by that. They're they're confused by it. You know. Okay, so. If may I say something about that? Yes. When I lived in South Africa, the Jewish community there, very, very unique, very united. They call themselves traditional. What does it mean, traditional? They follow all the holidays. Uh, They work, some of them work on weekends. They do anything they want. But when it's come the Sabbath, they have Friday night dinner. They like the candles. The kids know. The kids don't leave home only after the, the Friday night dinner. If they want, like the kids want date or whatever, it's okay. You can go out only after we have the traditional dinner. Then you can go out. When I moved to South Africa in 1985, my son was one month old, was born in Israel. I moved there. Now I'm a father. And I told my wife, Linda, I think I'm going to have to start not I think, I want to start going to temple every Friday night for a 45-minute service. And she said, and I never did it before. She said, well, if that's what you want, you do. I'm not going, but I promise you, when you come home, there will be a Friday night dinner, like the traditional dinner. Okay. That was good enough for me. So believe it or not, Durian, for 35 years, my son turned 35 in March. I'm going to temple every Friday night well, I miss here and there, but I really, really yeah. try not to miss it. Now, because of COVID-19, I do miss it. But until the COVID-19, I every Friday, I go for 45 minutes for two reasons. My dad, God bless him, before he passed away, he told me, wherever you are in the world, always be connected to your community. Very, very important. So for me, going and sitting in a temple with friends, and we call it schmoozing, talking and praying, you know. It's I feel connected. Yeah, I yeah. feel I belong, you know. And if I don't, it's like you as a Christian. If you don't go to church, that's it. You don't know any any anything uh, different. I decided, I made a decision that I want to do it for me and for my kids. So my kids, until they turn 18, they never went out. The house before they had Friday night dinner with us. Now they do what they want because they are adults. They have their own family. Right, right. They could do what they want. But it's very, very important that you grow up with a direction. It's either Christianity, Muslim, whatever you are. It doesn't matter whatever you believe. But it's very important to give your kids a direction, a path. They, They know where they're going. Because if they're not... They get lost. A lot of Jews, in my opinion, in America today, lost. 
not not only lost, they feed by the media that always bashing the little democracy, the only democracy in the Middle East, Israel, by telling Israel is apartheid or calling Israel names. And these kids think the way they fed up with the fed, sorry, not fed up, fed by the news that they get here. That's why, my friend, I didn't watch news. I didn't watch TV for 15 years. I know it's going to be hard for you to, to believe. I watch movie to my own choice, but I don't watch news. Yeah. I don't watch news, yeah. my friend, for 15 years, okay? And not to say that all TV is bad. It's not. But people sitting and watching TV, flipping channel to channel, then look at the time, already four hours watching TV. I could read a better book. I could listen to good uh, broadcast. I can work on my personal growth. And it's so important. People don't do that. People waste their time, especially through the corona, was watching all the news and became depressed. I am, through the corona, I was always positive, full of energy. And that's how the, the, the videos that I put on my Yossi Fitness Guru on Facebook, if yeah. you look at it, you see all my videos are full of energy, happiness. And I always say, when you feel good, that's how I end up my videos. When you feel good, you do good. And when you're healthy, you're a millionaire. Because to be healthy, in my opinion, it's the, it's the most important. How did you come up with this mindset after, you know, based off of growing up and hearing all these stories and understanding about Israel and, all, and, and everything that's happening? Where did health and wellness come into this, start playing a larger role? Uh, okay, so when it's come to the wellness, um, the last year of my service, I uh, was uh, in a place called Atur. Now it's back in Egyptian hand. We returned it to the Egyptian when we signed peace with them. And um, we used to have the base, and then five mile away, five kilometers from the base, there was a, a small city called Ophira, Israeli city. And so a guy used to run every day, every afternoon. And he asked me to join him. And I did. So I started running with him. And then it became my passion. Because as a kid, I didn't really, you know, in Israel, we grew up we're doing very different activities. Um, I remember they built the building. We used to go to the second floor. And uh, on the bottom, there was a, a, a pile of sand that they're going to use to mix with the cement. We used to jump from the second floor to the, to the sand. And we used to do all kind of crazy, crazy stuff. I'm telling you, I, I look <laughs> yeah. at people that grew up today in the city, they don't grow up like that anymore. We used to do crazy stuff. And um, and so that became my passion to run. So when I moved to South Africa, uh, before, one year after my service, I was still in Israel. I started running with a good friend uh, six miles every day. Every day, six miles. When I came to South Africa, I met a group of people and they told me, uh, the runners, we're running a marathon in one month, in four weeks. And I said to him, you're kidding me. I'm running only six miles. Now I have to run another 20 miles? That's crazy. Stick with us, you do it. So I did. I went for my first marathon. Believe it or not, I did three hours, 19 minutes. I didn't know if it's good or not. They all came. Oh, my God, it's great time. And That's amazing. They told me that. They told me after mile 20, you're going to hit the wall. It's a very, uh, 
well-known terminology among runners. What's happened in psychology? Yeah, it's pretty common. Yeah. Well, did you run marathon? Yeah, I was a big runner back in a uh, long time ago. I was a college athlete, was a runner. And that's always been the mentality. You hit that level, you're going to fall apart, you know. So you, exactly. So I was kind of slowing down on my run. I could do much better because I was waiting to hit the wall. I didn't know what they meant, you know. <laughs> I'm looking at the time, it says mile 20, and I'm waiting to hit the wall. And there's no wall. I felt great. But I was so scared, so I, I just kept the same distance. So my, my point is, it's all here in your mind, my friend. It's all in your mind. Okay? So um, your question was how it became so positive? That was your question? Yeah, basically like in growing up in Israel and all this just amazing information, how wellness or health and wellness became such a large part of your life, you know? Okay, okay, okay. All right. So Okay, so I told you about start running. And since my first marathon, I finished 24 of them, and two of them 56 miles in South Africa. It's called Comrades Marathon. It's the oldest marathon in the world. It's probably 90 or 100 years old by now. Very, very old marathon. And uh, then I left South Africa. I came to United States. 1986, I introduced myself to triathlon, swim, bike, run. And I went to do my first triathlon, and I fell in love with the sport. And um, that time, I was, uh, in my previous life, I always joke, I used to be a dental technician. I used to do crown and bridge work for the dentist. And man, I hate it with passion. I hate <laughs> it with passion. I used to be miserable. I used to scream at my kids. I used to slam doors. I used to be unhappy per- person. Even if I ran my own business for 15, for 14 years, I still hate it. My kids all the time, Dad, you have to be a personal trainer because that's your life. You love sport. You love exercise. You love people. I was scared to do that. The fear of change. I was scared to death. What happens if I don't make it? And all kind of bad thoughts in my mind. Until they open LA Fitness in Irvine on Barenka. It's a very huge, huge, huge facility. And they, they had a small office where they signed members before they opened the facilities. I went there. I talked to the manager. Roger was his name, French guy. I told him, I want to work for you. He said to me, well, I don't know what jobs we're going to I said, I want to work for you. I don't care. Now, what I did different than most of people, after sending in the resume, my resume, I keep calling. I keep stopping by. I keep knocking on the door. I keep asking. I keep asking for the job. Well, most of people they send a resume and they're waiting. Yeah. Now, guess my friend, when the job was available, who did you who do you think they called first? They called you. Bingo. Why? Because I showed them I'm serious. I want the job, and the rest was history. I sold my lab. I sold all the business I did, and I made a decision. Age fifty five. I'm going to pursue what I love with everything I have and I will be successful and I will help people to change their life. And that's where I came with a page on Facebook that called I Love My Life 55 Plus. And it's under Yossi Fitness Guru. When you go Yossi Fitness Guru, it will open page I Love My Life 55 Plus. And for a year and a half, and not including the last five, six months of the COVID-19, 
I interview people, mostly athletes. My only goal is to inspire and motivate people from all walks of life to live a healthy life. And I'm, I'm, I'm the evidence that you can do it. And I'm young, I'm 65. Two weeks ago, I interviewed a gentleman, 87. I met him on the bike trail running. And I stopped him and I said to him, listen, I see you many times when I ride my bike, when you run, please tell me how old are you? He goes, 87. I said to him, you're wow. joking me. He says, no, I'm not. I'm 87. So I, I told him about my page. We exchanged numbers and I call him and I interview him. Months ago, I interviewed a lady from Canada. She was 433 pounds. She's 186 today. Whoa. So why I'm telling you that I, I connect with a lot of people. And when I tell them what I do, like you ask me, they are saying, hey, if I can inspire people to get out of, up at their tush and start doing some exercise and live a healthy life, I will do it. Now, I want you to understand, and the people that listen understand, it doesn't mean that because I exercise, I will live longer than you. Please, God. But it's the everyday lifestyle that you live. You see, when I go upstairs, or I bend down and up, I don't get tired, I don't breathe heavily because I'm fit. My body is fit. I eat healthy food. I don't eat junk food. Um, I drink two glasses of wine every night and I don't eat, uh, 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 I uh, avoid sugar, I avoid salt. A lot of people will say, so why are you living? You know, we all love food, but depends what food you eat. Most definitely. Uh, you're an inspiration, Yossi, for sure. And I, I think what, what I was key it. that, yeah, what you said was, it's not that you're going to live longer. It's just you're going to live on a daily basis better. You're not going to have limitations of the things that you can do physically and mentally in that space. You're going to be sharper for the days you do have on this planet. Yeah. Yeah. And if can I add a little bit more? Yeah, please, man. Go for it. I thank you very much. I am very fortunate to train to train a lady by the name Dotsi Bush. Dotsi Bush, she raced with the American team, pursued indoor cycling in London Olympic game, and she they won the silver medal. Dopsy did it while she was vegan. And she was the oldest athlete in Olympic game history. She was 39. Okay? Wow. I train her three times a week. We are very good friends. She lives a mile away from me. And um, she's an amazing individual. I interview her on my page. You know? People tell her, you're lucky. She wasn't lucky. She was anorexic. She tried to commit suicide until she decided to make a change. You know, the great Jim Rohn used to say, to make a change, you have to change. To make things better, you have to get better. Yes. So she decided to get better. And she got herself a bike. And she started working for a um, delivery company. She used to deliver uh, 
paper or not paper, but uh, documents. And she used to do like 60 miles every week on the bike. And then she entered a couple races and she started winning races. And the rest was history. From being anorexic, from being suicidal, to top in the world in cycling. That's amazing. So I highly, I highly recommend to people to go into this page and go scroll like eight months. I interview people, um, all of fame in triathlon, all of fame in cycling. Uh, I interview a guy without a leg. He's a champion in indoor cycling, one leg only. I interview a guy that went to Australia across the street for a vacation and a car hit him. He fell on his, he flew, land on his head. His brain was out. His mom pushed the brain into his scalp and they rushed him to hospital. The doctor said, you'll never be able to walk anymore. The guy is raised triathlons today, Ironman. So I interview a lot of very unique people for only one reason, not to show, to show off what they do. Because you can do it, everybody everybody can do it. That's why Nike came with the slogan, just do it. Everybody can yes, do it. Yes, sir, man. I love it. Mind. Yossi, you're awesome, man. I'm so glad I got a chance to listen to all these wonderful things that you're about and the stories uh, and learning about Israel and um, sharing, you know, a little bit about your mother's experience in the Holocaust. I mean, what a... What an incredible experience for me and for my listeners to listen to this. Thank you so much for your time. Thank I appreciate you. it. I do appreciate your time. I appreciate the opportunity. And God bless you, my friend. And remember, when you feel good, you do good. And when you're healthy, you're a millionaire. Amen to that. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching. And finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut, or The Dose of News Useful Today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine. And when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences and it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about and it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else it's your daily reminder that there is good in the world even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes so get the donut stay informed it's hundred percent free you can unsubscribe anytime Visit thedonut.co or text DONUT to 66866 to sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.